All right, well, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 7. My goal is for us to start picking up the pace. I say this, it's always subject to change, but I'm going to try to start having a little bit of a chapter-by-chapter approach. That was how I uh, taught you know, the first few books, and uh, I really enjoyed that. And then we started to slow it way down. And uh, I'm just kind of feeling like it's time for a little bit of a speed it back up, especially as we're in John and and narrative. So anyways, that's kind of what's going on today. And um, before I start my my handy stopwatch here, why don't we pray? That doesn't count for my time. Father, we love you so much, and I thank you for each and every saint, each and every soul that is here today, each and every heart, that they have come in here for different reasons, no doubt, and you know them all, you know the needs, you know the hurts, you know the exhaustion, you know the failures, the regrets, the fears, you know the, the hearts that are full of joy and celebration, you know, Lord, just how to minister to each and every person in this room, and I know that you are very concerned, Father, to do just that. For you have invited us into your presence to come as we are, to be able to lay our cares down at your feet because you care for us. And Lord, there is no greater way for you to speak into the lives and the hearts of the people than through your all-sufficient word. And so we come to your word believing, God, that you will open our eyes, open our hearts, that your word will come to life by your spirit, And as I'm simply walking through this chapter, your Holy Spirit will connect it to the hearts of your people, even my own. We believe that, Lord. We are so very grateful for that. I simply pray that your word would speak to us today by your Holy Spirit. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so, working our way through the Gospel of John, I would say you could uh, break the book up into three sections. Chapters 1 through 12 would really be Jesus' public ministry. John tells us in John chapter 20, everything that he put in that book was so that we would read it, believe it, believe in Jesus Christ, and have eternal life. And so what he recounts for us in the first 12 chapters is Jesus' public ministry as he's preaching, teaching, doing miracles, and so on and so forth, but also his ultimate rejection. And that's, uh, that's, that's really chapter 12 kind of concludes on that note. That is the end of his public ministry. And then chapters 13 through 17, uh, that is all the night before Jesus is to be crucified. And that deals with Jesus' private ministry with his disciples. I can't wait to get to that portion of scripture. Uh, the upper room discourse, it is by far one of my favorite in all of the Bible. And then, of course, you go 18 to... 21, and that's his death, burial, and and resurrection. Well, we're still in this first section. In fact, we're picking up in chapter 7 today, and we've already begun to see rejection springing up. In fact, last week, as Pastor Dan closed chapter 6, and he did so gloriously, I was listening to it as we were driving down to Costa Mesa to the pastor's conference there at the Calvary Chapel, and man, I was just worshiping the Lord as we were listening to him preach that text so beautifully. And so I praise God for, for Dan, praise God for you guys, praise God for 
John chapter 6, but now we're moving into John chapter 7, and we're going to kind of continue to see this, this rejection. And I would say chapter 7 and 8, really what we see is a hostility, a, vol, it's a volatility, is that a word? Volatile, very volatile. And uh, it's amazing to me how many different opinions you see about Jesus in this chapter. They're going to be at a feast, a very major feast in Israel that happens yearly. And so I just, you know, the, the title popped into my head, Ignorance Fest at the Feast. Because in a lot of ways, that's kind of what you see. So many different opinions, misunderstandings, false assumptions about who Jesus is. And what we're ultimately seeing is what would be the... the the culminating rejection of Christ, and it's kind of the ball is rolling now at this point. And so with that, let's go ahead and pick up and look at chapter 7, verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in a chair somewhere nearby you. I would encourage you to have a Bible as we'll be looking at a lot of Scripture together. So verse 1, it says, After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for even his brothers did not believe in him. So you'll notice here in verse 1, it says, after these things. Now six months have passed from chapter 6, the end of chapter 6, I think it's verse 71, to John chapter 7, verse 1. And we know that because we were at the Feast of Passover, and now we're at the Feast of Tabernacles. So actually, it says after these things, you would think it was like the next day maybe, but it's actually six months later. And we're told at this point, Jesus walked in Galilee, he didn't want to walk in Judea. Now, I, had a, I was going to, I forgot to get the map, but I was going to show us, again, we've talked about this before, Israel at that time, it was, it was kind of like California in the sense that you have Southern California, you have Central California, and Northern California, and really all three of them are, they're quite distinct, right, from each other. And so Northern California and Southern California, very different, and they don't claim each other, Right. And so neither really considers the other to be true California. And so at any rate, um, that's kind of what it was like in Israel. Except Israel is not, even, not anywhere close to the size of California. It's actually closer to the size of New Jersey. And so very, very tiny little place. And so that's why they were able, I mean, it took time to walk and to travel from the upper to the lower regions of Israel, but they could do that because it was a pretty small place. And so we're told that Jesus walked, carried himself, ministered, taught, preached to the people in Galilee. That's the northernmost part of Israel. That's where all the country folk were. It's very green. It's a beautiful place. Uh, down south was a lot more like desert, a lot of rocks, uh, but that's, that would be where the religious center was down south in Jerusalem. That's where the temple was. That's where everybody would go for the feast. And we're told that is where Jesus tried to stay away from. So Jesus spent the bulk of his ministry up north in Galilee. From time to time, he would go down south, but 
he kind of stayed away from the southern part because that really was the epicenter of the hostility for Jesus. He just tend to, uh, would tend to have so many um, problems with the religious leaders, and we'll see that today in our text. So he would tend to stay away from, from, the, uh, from Judea, from the southernmost part of Israel, as we're told here. And the reason is ultimately because the Jews wanted to kill him. Now, does anybody at this point remember why the Jews wanted to kill him? We were told back in John chapter 5 when they began to conspire against Jesus. Does anybody remember why? Say it loud and proud. Blasphemy. Blasphemy? Okay. Huh? Okay, yeah. He, he healed on the Sabbath. That was really the issue. He did a healing on the Sabbath, and then he made himself equal with God. Because Jesus will begin to use that kind of language as the Father has life in himself, so too does the Son have life. So we're told back in John 5, 16, that for this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. So he's already a marked man at this point. So going down south, he was taking a, I say he was taking a risk. He really wasn't, but, you know, he kind of stayed out of the hotbed of uh, religious hostility. Now, we're told that it is the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles. If you don't know about the Feast of the Lord, I can't encourage you enough to study into that. And those are really laid out for us in Leviticus 23. Leviticus, such an exciting book. But uh, Leviticus 23, very fascinating. There are uh, seven feasts that are laid out for us there. And some of them are very familiar to us. We often hear about the Passover, right? Unleavened bread, first fruits, Pentecost, of course. That's the day that the Holy Spirit fell and the church was born. And, you know, Jesus fulfilled all of those feasts. They really were a picture of what Christ would come and do. It, it spoke of something that took place in the past, something that God did, but it also looked forward to what Christ would come and do. And Jesus fulfilled those first four feasts to the day. Jesus was crucified on the day of the Passover. That was the day where they would sacrifice uh, lambs. Each family would have a lamb and sacrifice it for the sins of the family, right? And, of course, John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins. What? Finish it. For the world. Amen? And so here we have another feast. This is another feast, and it's called the Feast of Tabernacles. Sometimes it's called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Shelters. And um, what they would do is there would be this huge pilgrimage. All the Jews would come to Jerusalem, and they would build tents. They would build little booths, little shelters, and they would live in them. It's a seven-day feast, and they would camp out in these little shelters. And what this was was a, a reminder to them of their forefathers wandering through the wilderness and uh, living in, in shelters and booths, as it were. And so they were remembering traveling through the wilderness and God dwelling amongst his people. That's, that's really what it was. They were there in the wilderness and God was with them. Remember, he would, at nighttime, he would be a pillar of fire. And during the day, he would be a pillar or a, like a cloud that covered them as they traveled. And so looking back to the time when they were dwelling in the wilderness and God tabernacled with his people... And so we believe that Christ will fulfill this too in the future. It's yet to be filled, but there will come a time when God will 
tabernacle with his people yet again. Amen? And so uh, that's, that's what's going on. They're in Jerusalem. There's this awesome feast of tabernacles. There's a lot of significance in this feast that we will see kind of rise to the top. But notice that Jesus' brothers, they mocked him. They were mocking him. And uh, they apparently didn't believe him. And this would even be James and Jude. Those are some of the authors in the, the New Testament. They didn't believe Jesus at this point. They came to believe in him after the resurrection. But right now they don't. And so they're saying, hey, man, you need to go up to the feast. You need to make yourself known. You need to show off for the world so they can see who you really are. That's, a, it, that's essentially what they're doing, and it, it's cynical. You know, it's cynicism. And what's fascinating to me about this is that this was the same, essentially, kind of uh, temptation that Satan used against Jesus. Remember that? He was like, man, go up to the temple, just throw yourself off, and God will send His angels to catch you. And then everyone's going to know you are who you say you are, right? And so Satan was trying to tempt Jesus to get out in front of God, to do his own thing, make himself known. Get glory for yourself. Don't worry about God's timing and God's way. Circumvent all that, right? And so, again, it's interesting. Sometimes you see those same kinds of temptations pop up throughout the the gospels and we don't necessarily catch it but again it almost seems like under the surface satan is still trying to tempt jesus in much more subtle ways through other people even his own brothers who didn't believe in him you know that's pretty pretty interesting you know so satan's devices they're not original and they really don't change you know he's not very original in uh in the way that he goes about tempting. He appeals to the flesh. He appeals to our desire for glory, for status, for recognition, for power, for pleasure. And that's what he tends to always go for, right? And uh, I would say in many ways here it's, you know, don't worry about God's timing. Just go for it right now. Don't wait on God. Just do your own thing. Make it happen. I don't know about you guys, but how often can we succumb to that temptation? God's timing is just not our timing. I wish it was. You know, I wish that God was on my time clock. Because I want things yesterday, and I want things to happen rapidly, right? And with God, it's just not always that way. Sometimes it is. God has two speeds, I've heard. Slowly and suddenly, right? Slowly and suddenly. I like those suddenly seasons, but uh, most often it's slowly. And here they're trying to taunt Jesus and uh, those who are closest to Jesus. And they're like, just go ahead, go, 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 make yourself known. But Jesus didn't succumb to that. Look at verse 6. Then Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to this feast. I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. Now when he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. So Jesus says, my time has not yet come. Now this is actually a significant little statement that Jesus makes frequently throughout the Gospels. And Oftentimes, they'll say, my hour. Is that familiar to you guys? You've heard that? My hour has not yet come. That's referring to his mission. That is that he came to die. He came to die 
and to rise again from the grave for us. And so Jesus was living for that. He came here for that purpose, and every day was a countdown to that moment, to that hour. And he was not going to be deterred from it. His face was set, as it were. He would not be deterred from it. And there was nothing that was going to stop it from happening. It wasn't going to happen a day sooner than God had determined, and it wasn't going to happen a day later. You understand? God's timetable is like that. And so Jesus was committed. And he said, my hour has not yet come. Now he says to them, your time is always ready. And that's kind of a confusing little statement. What does he mean by that? And so, you know, it seems to me like what he's kind of saying here is I'm on God's, I'm of God, and I'm on God's timetable, God's time clock. You, however, are not of God, and so you are not. Almost like saying that they're, they're, there's no purpose to their lives. There's no meaning to it. You're just here. You're just taking up space. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. However, Jesus was of God. He was here on God's mission, and he was on God's time clock, timetable. Amen? And so then he says, look, the world hates me because I testify of it. So Jesus is not of this world. He is of God. He's on God's mission. And Jesus testifies to the wickedness of the world that he came to save. You know, Jesus was full of grace and truth. Amen? He didn't come to condemn the world. He came to save the world. But he didn't shy away from calling the world out for its wickedness. And uh, Jesus is the only one that could really do that perfectly. Full of grace and truth. Right? Uh, he didn't endorse, you know, sin. Um, he didn't co-sign on it, but he didn't necessarily condemn the sinners either. He just had this very, like, amazing way about him to be full of grace and truth. He spoke the truth, the hard truths, but he did it in love. He did it with grace. And so Jesus said, however, it doesn't matter, the world hates him. And we know, guys, we live in a world... We live in a world where if we stand for truth, if we stand for Jesus, if we stand for righteousness, we're going to be hated. And that's just going to, and we're entering into a season now. I know um, Calvary Chapel, I don't, I'm not going to say where, but you know, up in Northern California, the pastor last weekend went into his church and all the, uh, all the locks have been super glued, you know, so they couldn't get into the building. And so I just say that kind of stuff, I think it's springing up more and more. And, uh, you know, we have to stand boldly for the truth of Jesus Christ. We're going to be hated. You know, Jesus said that he testifies of the, the world and its wickedness, and they hate him. And, and we will, too. And if we're not, maybe it's because we're not really testifying or standing up for the truth of Jesus. You know, that's something I've thought about from time to time. Maybe I'm not really uh, being as vocal about righteousness or the things of God or witnessing about Christ as I ought to, you know. Woe if the world speaks well of you, if all men speak well of you, you know. You tell a lot about a person by their enemies, right? And so it's not a bad thing to have enemies. We want to have the right enemies. Anyways, enough of that. Enough doom and gloom. So he says, the world cannot hate you. You know, they're of the world. They're of the world. Why would the world hate them? Before we were in Christ, it was all good. We were not a thing to the, to the enemy. 
The enemy was quite content for us to just stay right there in our ignorance and our deception and our rebelliousness, right? But once we are no longer of this world, but we are of God, the world does hate us, and so does the enemy, and the warfare kicks in, right? The warfare kicks in because we are no longer of this world, but we are of Christ. So then he says to them, you go up to this feast. I am not yet going up to this feast. So there's some confusion here because Jesus immediately goes up to the feast after they leave. And it's like, okay, what's going on here? Because it says yet here, I'm not yet going up to the feast. But in some other translations, the word yet is not there. So there's some confusion about if that word should even be there. And so, you know, what's going on here? I think essentially what Jesus is saying is, is you go up to the feast, but he has no intention of going in the way that they are trying to have him go. That's, that's not his M.O., right? He's going, but he's not going in the way that they intend for him to go. Because when he says, I am not going up, some people think that that is kind of a spiritual significance. He's talking about his crucifixion, to be raised up, right? It's not my time to be raised up. It's not my time to go up. It's not my hour. And so I'm not going to make myself known. I'm not going to get glory for myself. I'm not going to vindicate, vindicate and prove myself. You go, right? And so, verse 10, it says, But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said he is good, others said no, on the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. So now Jesus goes, but he goes secretly. The Jewish, the leaders there, the Jews, they're trying to find him. And we begin to see the various opinions already right here. Some people said he's a good man. Some people said he's a deceiver. And I will say both of them are off. Jesus is not just a good man. Okay, He's God in the flesh. He is, he is good. He's the only good one. Amen? He's the Son of God. And He is certainly not a deceiver. But you know, there's something interesting in this. Um, I've heard it said, and I don't necessarily care for this saying or the language, but it makes a lot of sense to me. I think we can all understand it. They say that Jesus is either a liar, He's not who He says He is, or He's, he's crazy, He's out of his mind, or he is Lord. Those are your only three options. If he's not who he says he is, then he's either out of his mind or he's lying, which makes him not a good person, right? And so you really only have one option, okay? And he is who he says he is or he isn't, and he's much more than a good man, amen? He's not just a prophet. He's not just a teacher. He is the Son of God, God in the flesh, very God of God. Well, nonetheless, the people were very low-key in their conversations because they were afraid of the leaders. So, you know, they were kind of on the down low here. It says, however, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews, the leaders. So the people, they were talking amongst themselves and they were, they were giving their opinions about Jesus, but they didn't really want to be detected by the leaders. So, verse 14 it says, Now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, How does this man know letters, having never studied? So now it's the middle of the feast. It's a seven-day feast, so we're about three or four days into the feast. 
And Jesus goes and teaches publicly in the temple. So he came. Everybody's you know, looking for him. Undoubtedly, there's this stirring of the people, and that kind of settles down by this point. Maybe people think he's not coming at all. Now he goes into the temple, and he begins to teach publicly. And then the people say, how does this man know letters, having never been taught? So he's an expert in the law. And they're like, how can this even be, right? What they're saying is, this guy's not been taught by any rabbi. He hasn't gone through any of the schools here. He's not been endorsed by the religious leaders. How does this guy have the knowledge that he has? And, you know, they're basically kind of saying, this guy doesn't have any authority. Who is he? How does he even know this stuff? He's not been endorsed or trained by our elite rabbis, right? And so Jesus says to that, verse 16, Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. So Jesus replied that his teaching was not from himself. It's not from me, and it's not from any of your rabbis. It's from the one who sent me. You know, they often said that Jesus spoke with such authority, authority like they had never seen before. And that's because the rabbis would always quote the rabbis. They would always quote some other teacher as their source of authority, right? But Jesus spoke as one from God. He didn't quote other rabbis. He didn't say this rabbi says this or this rabbi says that. He just spoke direct truth as the one sent from God. And nobody had ever seen anything like that before. They weren't used to this. And Jesus says to them that if anyone truly desired to know God and do God's will, they would know that they were hearing the truth of God when Jesus speaks. That's heavy. You're going to know you're going to know that you're hearing from God. If you really want to hear from God, and if you are here because you want to know God and you want to hear from Him, sincerely and genuinely in your heart, you're going to know when you hear the, the blessed words of Jesus that you're hearing from God. You're going to feel the power and the weight of His words, the truth of His words. You're going to know that you're hearing from God Himself when you hear and see the life and the teachings and the power of Jesus Christ. He said they would know that Jesus was true and righteous and sent from God. Jesus further validated himself as one seeking glory for God and not for himself. Jesus said, I am true because I have come here to seek glory for God and not for myself. See, people want glory for themselves. Can we just be honest? Who in here wants a little glory? You know you want a little taste of the glory, right? We all do. We all do, if we're honest. And Jesus said, I didn't come here for my glory. I came here for the glory of another. That makes him unique. Because the Pharisees, man, they wanted the glory. That is exactly what they wanted. They wanted to be the elite religious men. And people would say, oh, man, that guy, that's a holy man, you know, as he walks by. And Jesus said, good for you. You got your glory. There's your reward. I hope you're satisfied. But Jesus came to give glory to God. Now, in all honesty, we're probably not like, you know, conspiring and strategizing on how we can go get glory for ourselves, right? 
I mean, honestly, we're, we're just trying to make it. You know, we're just trying to do this Christian thing and live the Christian life and make it in a hard place to, to make it in the country, right? But I would say that maybe it's the other end. We, don't, we fail to strategize and conspire on how we can give God glory in our lives because we can give God glory in our lives. We're created to give God glory, amen? We're created for that purpose. Man, you want to talk about you know, fulfillment, satisfaction, um, you know, I, I tend to you know, kind of run from that kind of talk in, in church because a lot of churches, that's, you know, I mean, in the day and age we live, that's, you know, that can be like the thing that we're living for. But you know, to know God and to be known by Him and to be living for His purposes and serving Him with the gifts and the resources that He has given you, man, in that is true satisfaction in this life. Because we try to fill that hole with everything else. We try to fill it with self-glory, right? But uh, Jesus didn't do that. He lived for the glory of God. So how do we do that? How do we give God glory? Well, first off, I would say, we can give God glory even when nobody else is around. If there is a beautiful rose in the middle of a forest where no one has ever seen it or will ever see it, can God still be glorified by that rose? Yes, because it's precious to Him. He created it. It's beautiful. And he is pleased and receives glory from his creation. So really, who we are in the quiet of our hearts, who we are when no one's around, how we interact with God, when we choose to obey him and serve him and love him, when no one else sees it, God receives glory. Amen? God is glorified. We, we, we are following in the footsteps of our Savior as those who have come to give glory to God and not receive glory for ourselves. But we can also give God glory in the public square as we are simply living lives to please God in the world around us. As the world is getting darker and crazier and more hostile to the truth, as we live in simple obedience to the Word of God, we shine like a light on the hill. And that is reflecting God's glory to a lost and dying world. So we follow in our Savior's footsteps as we live a life of giving glory to God reflecting God's goodness, His kindness, His mercy, His grace, His truth. And that kind of goes back to the grace and truth. If we are those who don't compromise on the truth, we love the truth, but at the same time, we seek to be those who are full of grace and living with grace and compassion and mercy, that glorifies God. That glorifies our Savior who is full of grace and truth. Amen? And so living for the glory of another, that was Jesus's. That was what he was all about, and that was what made him different from everyone else. That's how he distinguished himself. He said, you know that I am true because I have not come for my glory, but for the glory of another. Verse 19. Now, at this point, Jesus is going to start to really expose the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. Verse 19. Did not Moses give you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? Now the people answered and said, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work, and you all marvel. Moses therefore gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. 
So Jesus said to the leaders, you guys really boast in Moses. You really are proud of Moses and the law, but you don't even do what Moses said. They don't even do what Moses said. And then he said, essentially, one greater than Moses has come and you want to kill me. Jesus is greater than Moses, right? Hebrews, I think chapter 1, chapter 2, greater than Moses, and they want to kill him. Now, they were already plotting Jesus' demise. He knew it, and he calls them out for it. I'm sure they were like, you know, because up to this point, it's not like they had made any attempts on it. They were conspiring amongst themselves, and then Jesus says, you want to kill me? And they're like, you know, that probably threw them off, right? And so they're like, no, man, you got a demon. And that, to me, is such a weird comeback. I guess in modern vernacular, that's like, you know, talking about someone's mama. No, but they're like, that's like saying you're crazy. You're out of your mind. You know, it's fighting words, man. Don't tell me I got a demon. You know, square up with somebody, right? And so Jesus is like, no, I don't have a demon. And he rebukes their hypocrisy. uh, And he talks about the law. You know, it was the law that a child was to be, a male child was to be circumcised on the eighth day. Now, if that should fall on the Sabbath, of course, they would do it anyways. And so he said, so there it is. According to your man-made traditions, you're breaking the law. And so if you are willing and able to do such a thing to keep God's law, how are you going to come at me for making a person whole on the Sabbath? And so this was always the issue between Jesus and the religious hypocrites of the day. You know, they were only concerned with outward appearance and righteousness, externals. You know, that was, the, that was the, the leaven of the Pharisees. They were hypocrites, right? Jesus, however, was very concerned about the heart of the law and the inner man. And that's a good reminder for us because <clears throat> we can fall into that trap. We really can. As long as everything on the outside is looking good, we're doing all right. As long as everybody else thinks that I'm good, we're doing all right, right? And when you start to live that way, you can become harsh, you can become critical of other people because they don't look as good as you look, right, on the outside. We don't have grace for other people because they can't seem to get their act together. And, uh, and we don't even maybe realize that we are guilty. We're not even keeping the, the man-made laws that we've crafted for ourselves and uh, Jesus would say crazy things to them. He would say, you know, you, you strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. Have you ever heard that? You, have you ever wondered what in the world that means? Well, as I understand it, a gnat would be the smallest of the unclean animals. You know, they couldn't eat anything unclean. It was not kosher. And so they would literally, like, filter their water through a cloth so that they would not inadvertently drink a gnat. But then Jesus, the camel was the largest of the unclean animals, and he's like, you'll, you will filter your water so not to accidentally swallow a gnat, but you'll turn on and eat a camel. Through your hypocrisy, through your, you know, uh, your sinful hearts, your, you know, on and on. And so that was kind of always what was going on, and that's what's happening here. That's really the, the, the heart of the issue between Jesus and the Pharisees. Well, moving on, verse 25. Some of them uh, from Jerusalem said, Is this not he who they seek to kill? But look, he speaks boldly, and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know, uh, know indeed that this is truly the Christ? However, we know where this man is from. 
But when the Christ comes, no one will know where he is from. So now we kind of see the, the ignorance continue. The common folks were surprised that the rulers at this point had found Jesus but weren't trying to arrest him. And so they're speculating, is it possible that the rulers think that Jesus is legit? Right? And they said, however, we know that when the Messiah comes, he's just going to burst on the scene from nowhere. And, and you know, that's, that's, that was kind of the, the prevailing thought of the day is that when Messiah comes, he's just going to come from nowhere. And it's going to be a mystery man that just steps on the scene. And so the people knew where the Messiah would be born because the scriptures were clear about that. Micah 5 2 is a prophecy of the birth of the Messiah in Bethlehem. And you'll remember when the wise men came to, uh, to Herod. Remember that in Matthew 2? And Herod kind of gets freaked out because he's like, who's this king? And he goes to, he goes to the religious, his religious guys and says, do we know where the, the king, the Messiah, is going to be born? They point back to Micah 5, 2 and say, yes, in Bethlehem. So they knew where the, the Messiah would come from, but they had this idea that he would just pop on the scene one day as this mystery man who was just going to take over. And so the people thought they knew, but they didn't know about Jesus, right? And so verse 28, Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple, saying, you both know me and you know where I am from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. But I know him, for I am from him, and he sent me. So Jesus is basically saying, you think you know me, but you don't know me. You think you know me, but you don't, because the one who sent me is true, and you don't know him. So he's basically saying, if you know God, you would know me. If you knew the Father, you would know his Son whom he has sent. So you think you know me, but you don't. Now, that's, uh, that's kind of scary language that we all have to take to heart. There may be some even in this room who think they know Jesus, but they don't, right? And there's all kinds of reasons how we could end up in that place. And so we have to examine ourselves. We have to think hard about what the Word of God says. We have to have some hard conversations potentially with our brothers and sisters around us or pastors and try to discern, do I understand the gospel? Have I really believed savingly on Jesus? Am I really walking in the light? Am I really living a life that bears fruit? Because the last thing we want to do is hear those words, depart from me, I never knew you, right? That's scary stuff. And that's essentially what we have going on here. They think they know Jesus, but they don't know anything about him. Well, this outraged the rulers, this outraged the rulers because they said, Jesus says, I know God, I've been sent by God, I'm from him. So verse 30, therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him look, because his hour had not yet come. And many of the people believed in him and said, when the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? So now the leaders, they want to apprehend Jesus. They want to, they want to capture him. But they weren't able to do so. Why? Because Jesus' hour had not yet come. Because God had a divine timetable here, time clock, that could not be disrupted. I love that. We cannot thwart God's plans. I take comfort in that. I hope that and believe that, even in my own failings and struggles, 
that I can't thwart God's plan. That would be pretty sad if I could, I guess. Almighty God, God of eternity, God of creation, His, His grand plans are be, being thwarted by my puny little weaknesses and you know failings. I just don't think so. I praise God that God's will will be done. Amen? Amen. And so we're... Um, told that there were people in the crowd now who actually believed in Jesus. I think that's significant. Verse 31, and many of the people believed in him. So I think here we have a little glimpse of some folks in the crowd who got it right. So now we see people who actually do believe in Jesus savingly. And their reasoning is, look, is there somebody supposed to come on the scene and do even more than this guy has done? I mean, God, how much more does this guy have to do to prove himself, right? How much more does he have to do? Now, that's a great question. That's a great question worthy of camping on for just a minute. How much more does Jesus have to do? How many more questions have to be answered before we will finally believe? You know, for some people, they're not asking questions out of sincerity. They're asked because they just want to test, test. It doesn't matter how many of their questions are answered. They're not going to believe. But there comes a point when you have to just have faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God, right? And so faith must enter in. And then other kinds of doubts begin to creep in. You know, does God really love me? You know, we start to really grapple with our own sinfulness as believers. Yeah, I get it that God forgave me when I was ignorant and I was outside of Christ. But now that I'm inside Christ, there's no excuse. So obviously God has to be mad at me. His love for me has to wane as I continuously sin, struggle, fall over and over and over again. Can you relate with me what I'm saying here? And so, what more must God do to prove His infinite love for us other than He sent His one and only Son, Jesus Christ, to die for us? There's nothing God could or would ever need to do beyond that to demonstrate His infinite love for us. And we cannot out that. Amen? Praise God for that. Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? Absolutely not. But just know, dear saints, God has done everything to prove His love for you. And that love will never fail. It will never dry out. It will never come up short. Amen? Jesus doesn't have to do anything else to, pr- to prove His amazing love for us beyond what He has demonstrated at the cross. Amen? Praise God for His love. Look at verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning Him, and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take Him. Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer, then I go to Him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come. Then the Jews said among themselves, where does He intend to go? that we shall not find him. Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What is this thing that he said, you will seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come? So at this point, I think the rulers are hearing. They tended to try to keep hands off of Jesus because they didn't want to get the crowds upset. But now they're hearing the murmuring in the crowds, and they're probably feeling like this is their opportunity so they get the, chief, the, the temple police to go and arrest Jesus. They come to Jesus, 
And he's like, starts hitting them with these cryptic riddles. Where I'm going, you cannot come. And that, that seems to like throw them off. And I always thought that was weird. And I thought, man, I wish that worked for me. Like in the past, you know, if I get approached by the police and I'm like, where I'm going, you cannot come. And they're like, oh, wow, okay. You know, but instead it's more like you're going to get tased or it's like you're under arrest. You know, that just don't fly, right? But it worked for Jesus and uh, that's pretty cool. And so the, the leaders are like, man, where is he going to go? Is he going to go like, outside of Israel to the Gentiles and the Greeks and just set up shop there and, and get out of Israel altogether? And so this to me is the antithesis of how Jesus treats those who genuinely seek him. You know, these guys weren't genuinely seeking him, obviously. They were trying to find him, but not because they wanted to know more about him or because they wanted to follow him. And so Jesus just confused them all the more. But on, on the contrary, to the heart that genuinely seeks Jesus, he makes himself known. Amen? To the heart that really wants to know him, who really wants to learn of him, who really wants to follow him, Jesus makes himself crystal clear. You know, the Bible says things like, if you knock, it will be opened to you. Seek, and you will find. If you seek me with your whole heart, you will find me. Jesus said to his disciples, he just said to these people, where I'm going, you cannot come. But to his own disciples, he says, where I go, you will come. For I go to make a place for you, for where I am, you will be also. Amen? So that's our God. If we seek him with our hearts, we will find him. He will make himself known to us. He will open up his heart and his arms to us. And he will take us in. And where he is, we will be also. But to the, to the person who's simply trying to trap Jesus or disprove Jesus or mock Jesus, he is not made known to them, you know? Well, these temple police, this comes up a little later in the story. It appears that they kind of back off at this point. So let's uh, go a little further here. Verse 37. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. So this is the last day of the feast. So we move forward about another three days, and this is called the great day of the feast. So what would happen on the seventh day of the Feast of Tabernacles is that the priest would go get a pitcher of water in the temple and they would be making their way across the temple and everybody would be around singing, singing psalms, celebrating, and then they would pour this water out onto the steps. And I don't know if this was commemorating how God gave water to His people in the wilderness. Uh, I'm not 100% sure on that, but this appears to be perhaps the moment when Jesus cries out, Come to me. If you're thirsty, come to me and drink, and out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. And I can just see that so clearly in my mind. Jesus takes this perfect opportunity to say, you're looking at this, but look at me. Come to me. Come to me and drink, and I will satisfy your thirst. And not only will you be satisfied, but out of your hearts will gush torrents of living water. That's the language there. It's like a raging river. It's not a stream. 
And that's the promise. And what's he talking about? He's talking about believing. Jesus says, we already have discussed this, the metaphorical language that Jesus often employs, it's synonymous with believing. And so he says, are you thirsty? Come to me and drink and believe. And you will be satisfied. And then out of your hearts will flow rivers of living water. I love this because early on in my Christian walk, I heard a pastor quote this, and he said, you know, we're used to taking. Gimme, gimme, gimme. Everybody else simply exists as a resource to us, right? We burn bridges, relationships. We take, take, and take till we can't get any more from over here, and then we go over there. You come to Jesus, and now you give. Out of your heart flows rivers of living water. Amen. It's not about need, need, need. Now it's about I want to give, 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 and serve because I'm satisfied. I'm overflowing. Amen. And this is the promise of the Holy Spirit. Now the Holy Spirit had not yet been given. The Holy Spirit had not yet been given. But it would when Jesus was glorified. And we live in the time now where the Holy Spirit is available to us through believing in Jesus Christ. Amen. And man, the glories of the Holy Spirit for the believer, all the precious promises and gifts that are ours as we believe in Jesus and receive the Holy Spirit. I just want to mention a few. I'll just mention a few. We are regenerated by the Holy Spirit. That is to be born again, spiritually alive. We were dead, now we are alive. We are in Him. The Holy Spirit indwells us, takes up residence within us. We then become the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit. That is God's stamp of authenticity, His authorization, His guarantee that He will make good on all of His promises to us, and He's given the Holy Spirit to us as a down payment. We are baptized by the Holy Spirit. We are united to Christ by the Holy Spirit, Christ in us, and we in Him. Amen? The Holy Spirit sanctifies us. He sets us apart. He takes us out of the world and makes us holy and consecrated unto God. The Holy Spirit gives us gifts. Gives us gifts to serve the Lord, to serve the body, and to bless one another. The Holy Spirit convicts us, keeps us on the right path, convicts us of our sin, doesn't condemn us, but convicts us, challenges our hearts. The Holy Spirit comforts us. Comforts us when we are hurting, when we are weak, when we are needy. The Holy Spirit leads us, gives us wisdom when we need it. We don't know where to go, what to do, how to do it, when to do it. We've got the Holy Spirit who knows, and He will lead us. Amen? The Holy Spirit gives us discernment. We have a built-in lie detector. We know when we hear things that don't measure up with the Word of God because the Spirit of God lives in us, and He gives us wisdom and discernment. The Holy Spirit teaches us. He leads us into the truth. He is our teacher. And I could go on and on and on, but these are the glories of the indwelling Holy Spirit which Jesus promised to those who believed in Him. Amen? Isn't that good? Isn't God good? Thank God for His Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. That's the love of our Savior. That's the love of our Savior in giving us the Holy Spirit. Well, we're going to go ahead and stop right here, okay? And so uh, let's close in prayer. Jacoby's going to come up and close us in a song. I'm actually going to obey my stopwatch for once. <laughs> it's a great note to end on. I want to pray and invite 
the Holy Spirit to do a fresh work in us. Lord, we come to you. We come to you, Heavenly Father, in the precious and mighty name of Jesus Christ. We thank you for your holy word that is living and powerful and sharp, sharper than any two-edged sword. And I thank you, Lord, that you have, uh, without a doubt, spoken into the hearts and lives of your people today by your living word. We thank you, Lord, that Jesus came from you. He came to make you known. And indeed, he has made you known to us in this room today. We thank you for the good news of the gospel, the finished work of Jesus Christ, that there is pardon for sinners, that there is forgiveness for sinners like us, that Jesus died a sinner's death. He didn't deserve it. He died that death in our place. He rose again from the grave, declaring victory over sin, death, and the grave, and Satan. And he did it for us. And we're told that if we believe in Jesus, trust Him for salvation, that we would receive His forgiveness, that we would receive His perfections, and that we would be children of God. I pray for anyone in this room today, Father, who up to this point has not trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation, that today would be the day. That today would be the day that they know You as Father that they know Jesus as Savior, that they call upon the mighty name of Jesus for forgiveness and turn from their sins and turn to Christ and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus, that you said it was good for us for you to go, that in so doing you would send the Helper. And thank you, Lord, that the Helper has come. Thank you that the Holy Spirit is ours, that the Holy Spirit fills us, strengthens us, leads us, teaches us, protects us, and uses us. May we be a clean vessel. May we be a vessel of honor for your glory, O God. Fit temples for the Holy Spirit. And I just pray that today, Lord, you would pour your Spirit out on us afresh in this place. For as I said earlier, there are many needs and you know them all, God. Your word is so very sufficient for these needs. But I thank you, Lord, that you even give us your Holy Spirit to help us in our times of need. To give us the strength to carry on for just another day, just another week. Praise you. You're with us, Lord. We honor you. We worship you. And I I pray, God, that you would pour your spirit out on us afresh today. That you would fill us again. Cleanse us from our unrighteousness and fill us with your goodness, Lord. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Use us for your glory. Use us to be able to bless other people this week and to consider how we can give you glory, God. How we can be those who come not for our own glory, but for your glory. And so we praise you, Lord. We worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.
Bless you guys. See you Sunday morning.